I was a weekly columnist uh, for a newspaper and I was doing regular media interviews, trading privacy for awareness of issues, hoping that that would further policy changes. And I was regularly meeting elected officials. Uh, I did get a scholarship from Mercy College to finish the bachelor's degree because I was one year short of graduating with that while I was incarcerated at the time the funding was cut. And from there, I got the master's degree. And after about five years, uh, five really long, hard, difficult years, I finally was um, compensated. And uh, I decided that I would use some of the money that I got in order to start the Jeffrey Deskovic Foundation for Justice. You know, before I was just doing the policy and the education, but I wanted to be involved more directly in freeing people. I mean, the most I could do prior to that was kind of nibbling on the edges. I mean, sometimes I wrote about wrongful conviction cases while the injustices were still afoot. And, you know, people bring attention to those cases and people were, that I wrote about were exonerated. And sometimes I would attend court hearings for the visual hearing, the visual appearance of, you know, the judges seeing me and sometimes the people doing public relational work on the cases would reference my attendance in the in the, their press release right. with the idea of trying to generate more media interest. And that worked. But again, that's kind of nibbling on the edges, if you will. So I wanted to be more directly involved, hence starting the foundation. And at some point after that, it was not enough for me to simply sit in the front row of the courtroom. I wanted to be able to sit at the defense table. I wanted to be able to represent some of the clients, and I wanted to be able to make some of the arguments, hence my foray into law school to you know, become the attorney that I am now. So how many – I mean, there's, I'm sure there are. Are there stats on like how many people are like wrongfully convicted every year? Yeah, there's a Wayne State University study that estimates that 10,000 people are wrongfully convicted each year. Uh, the National Registry of Exonerations, which um, has been tracking exonerations across the U.S. from 1989 forward, when I last checked a couple of days ago, there were up to 2,805 exonerations. Uh, remember, those are the people that made it out, not the right. people that are still in. Right. And for further context, I want to share that 19 people I did time with that I knew on the inside uh, were exonerated either before me or after me. So if I was to give an educated guess, I, I think that maybe 15 to 20 percent of the prison population is, uh, you know, actually innocent. Now, granted, there's, you know, I'm kind of out there on an island on that. And a lot of other people are more more at five percent or two and a half percent or half a percent. But the anecdotal evidence seems to be flowing my way. Uh, you know, some people are being exonerated more, more and more. And what is that? Is that my case it's... is not a rarity, though. The main point, though, is that my case is not a rarity, right. and mm -hmm. there's not enough organizations doing this work. And in you know, everybody is has way too large a caseload. There's really long waiting lists, and kind of what makes the situation worse is that most of the organizations in the field are what I call DNA centric, mm -hmm. meaning that they'll only take a case if there's DNA, but that's only available in five to 12% of all serious felony cases. So hence my starting my own organizations rather, rather than, you know, partnering with somebody else in terms of the exonerative piece, because we do both DNA and non-DNA cases. And I was actually going to bring the DNA up. So now in, in a lot of these exonerations, I'm sure DNA plays a, a major role, if not the only role, given you know that a lot of people aren't taking the, the non-DNA cases. But now on the flip side of that, what what other evidence are you using um, you know, to potentially exonerate uh, wrongfully convicted people? 
Sure. So some so uh, evidence of third party guilt. Okay. So sometimes it's an alternative suspect, you know, either that's either listed in the police reports or you can do an open record search, you know, do Google search. You look for similar crimes in nearby area. Uh, you could file freedom of information uh, law requests and sometimes documents that, that have contained evidence of innocence, either directly or else they uh, or else they provide a new investigative direction to come in. And as you pull the thread, metaphorically, it eventually uncovers additional uh, evidence that could be used. So it might be, it could, it could be, it could be, for example, a unknown witness where somebody was given uh, benefits in exchange for testimony, and that that was not uh, that was not disclosed. Right. So that can be that can be some of the form of evidence. Sometimes it could be based on a recantation, but not standing by itself. I mean, there would have to be some other piece of evidence that could throw some weight to the recantation. Like, look. I lied. This is what I lied about. Here's how you can know that I lied. So if it's something like that, then that's stronger. But just using a regular recantation, it's very hard to win based on that. But that's some of the types of evidence that, that could be used to exonerate somebody. So, so what type of investigation has to happen on your end, right? If it's a non-DNA you know, evidence. It seems like there has to be a lot more investigation going on where the DNA, I mean, I would, I would hope Correct. is a little more cut and dry. Yeah, 100%. Well, you know, we, we review limited legal. We review certain uh, legal documents. We read the police reports. We look at the, we look at lab reports. So sometimes, uh, so we, if it was a lab report, then if something wasn't tested, or we would look into, well, is that lab fully accredited? And we might pursue like a new test just to confirm, or maybe a test previously um, uh, yielded an inconclusive result, but technology, you know, has improved. But another thing is sometimes witnesses come to the surface that weren't known before, you know, and so traveling to them and, and interviewing them and ultimately getting getting an affidavit for them and looking to, you know, corroborate that with as many other witnesses or pieces of evidence that you could, that that might that might go into it. Now let me ask you a question, Jeff. And it's not funny, but are there people who come to you to, you know, clear their names that are actually guilty that you find in the course of your investigation? Yes, of course. Sure. To me, it seems yeah, so but, bizarre. But there's, there's certain things to look for. There's certain things to look for. So, for example, somebody that's emphasizing technicalities rather than they're being innocent, that, that would be that would be an example. I'll give you another example. Um, this actually happened. So uh, somebody, um, mm -hmm. there were guns found in a room that somebody was was living in mm -hmm. and their explanation to us was that other people had access to that room so their story was well somebody must have come in the room and planted the guns there so that when the police searched the room they were there mm -hmm. so that really didn't make any sense to us and when we pressed further he said well it was an illegal police search so really that evidence should not have been allowed in the court and since the court shouldn't have should not have considered it you shouldn't consider it either so you know we kind of right, laughed about right. that one and closed the case so that's an that would be an example i mean another time somebody you know they're they claimed that they had some new alibi witness that that you know they didn't know how to get a hold of before and they wanted us to interview mm -hmm. that person right. but uh but the 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 issue with that is that their defense at trial was they they, they used the self-defense at trial. So they said, yeah, which self-defense basically means, yes, I did it. However, I was justified in doing it. Right. I, was, I, I did the assault in the course of protecting myself. So 
something like that. Another time we caught somebody that, you know, in one letter, they initially alleged one one set of circumstances. And in the follow-up letter, they changed their story on us. And, you know, yeah. that. so that would be, so we know that there are some people that are guilty that, you know, are just uh, claiming not to be. But, you know, we also, but you also know that there are people that actually are innocent and, you know, they get some of them home. And even some of the people that we were not able to get to because, you know, our, our waiting list and the amount of people applying is far more cases. I mean, right now we're down to several, a backlog of several hundred cases that haven't been triaged yet. But at one time it was like about 600. And some of those people that we were never able to get to you know, eventually were exonerated through other attorneys, other entities. And, you know, they just mentioned offhand that they had wrote us. And sure enough, we found, you know, their letters. But, you know, you can only do what you, what right. you can. Right. So how, how long from start to finish, you know, uh, you mentioned with, with yours, you know, it went back to court. I think you said seven times, right, you know, to be exonerated. How how complicated is it for someone who has been – once you've been convicted to prove – you know, they've been wrongfully convicted. Like it's because it seems like that may be a very long, long process for, for many. Yeah. So I, I did lose seven appeals. And then, you know, after that, I wrote letters for four years, rarely getting answers. And then eventually I got representation. And then I was, you know, cleared after that through a post-conviction proceeding. So to answer your question, uh, yes, it is. It is a very, it is, it can be a long process and complicated. There's definitely nothing uh, easy about it. Uh, there's certain factors, though, that can either lengthen the process or make them faster. So, for example, if the applicant has the legal documents, somebody has the police reports, the lab reports, and uh, the direct appeal briefs, then that saves us time from us having to go out and collect them. Just like if they answer us back and send everything quickly, that's, that can speed things up as opposed to if it takes if it takes one or two months. Uh, if there's a district attorney's office that has a real conviction re re review unit, then once we make a submission to them, you know, then they'll review it and decide if they are going to agree with us or not. If they agree, then that shortens the process. But if they they're not going to agree with us, then you know we're going to have to you know file, make do legal filings and wait for responses and litigate it. And that you know that can that can certainly speed it up. It's like some cases have have investigative directions to go in. So when we decide to take a case, we ask ourselves, do we believe the applicant based on something objective? And do we see a potential route to victory? So the event, the potential route to victory has to do with like an investigative direction to go in. That's what's going to lead to your new evidence. And basically that's what you're betting on. When you take a case, you're betting on that those leads will break right for, for the defendant. So if a case has leads already, then that could be a lot faster than if we have to do a really painstaking in-depth review and try to scrounge around and look for leads. It's almost like you can get more more people freed if you take those cases, you know, those those cases where there's a lot of of information up front. Hundred percent. Yes, we do prioritize those. That's right. Okay. right. So we, yeah. So it's not as simple as you know the third person that wrote is the third right. case. It's, right. not as, it's not as simple as that. Right. So yeah, we do prioritize that. We do prioritize a DNA case. So, you know, yeah, for those, for those reasons, but another aspect of it also is, I mean, we, part of our assessment also is we think, well, how likely is it that all of these leads, you know, how likely is it that enough of them would break right? 
how much time would that take? What would be the monetary cost of that? So all of that has to, but there was a time that, so there were, there was a case that had two, well, two code, there was, it was three co-defendants, but two of them were applying to us. Somebody had representation already, you know, and it was pretty clear that they were, they were innocent, uh, you know, and the person who had a lawyer was trying to get representation for his co-defendants, but the case was so big that we would have had to shut everything down in order just to work on that one case. And we didn't really see that as, you know, as, as, as being practical because the problem is everybody had separate trials and not everybody was charged with exactly the same charges. So you would have to, you know, figure out like, you know, so who, you know, who's, who's got what charge, what evidence, what was said in this case versus that one, it would have really, it would have consumed way too many resources. And so we had to do a hard pass on that. Right. And it's important to point out, you know, back to what we were discussing earlier that you're you're not just a, a defense attorney you are actually yeah. looking for those those who are innocent you know which i think you know, is is what the difference is here and what what makes yes. what you're doing very important and unique um so my question then <laughs> a heavy one a loaded one what do you think needs to change in the legal system you know for, for if there was a world where none of this happened which i mean i'm sure you know, that's almost impossible, but what would need to change? So the, a number of things. So firstly, every district attorney's office would have a real conviction review unit, meaning not just window dressing, but, you know, actual people that work there that are moral and ethical and really are committed to trying to find innocent people where there's real resources in it. And another thing would be on the judicial level. Uh, sadly, part of the big battle is not just if the facts and law are on somebody's side, but whether or not the judges are going to give it an objective review and ruling rather than just rubber stamp denying. Uh, there's this maddening obsession in the legal system by judges where proceduralism is more important than substance of justice. And what I mean by that, so like I lost, for example, in federal court uh, because my legal paperwork arrived four days too late. You know, I lost based on that rather than, you know, my arguments being rejected. So those are factors we would need to have. Uh, we would we would need to have an end to prosecutorial misconduct. So in New York, one of the laws we were able to pass pertained to the uh, Commission on Prosecutor Conduct, so independent oversight board. So we would need to have that as a deterrence for prosecutorial misconduct and a place to hold people accountable to. We did pass that in New York. We're working on it in Pennsylvania and California, but we would need to have that across the board. We would need to have all video, all interrogations being videotaped from beginning to end. We would need uh, the best uh, identification procedures to be utilized. You know, we, we would need to have um, uh, external evidence corroboration requirement. When it comes to informants, like nobody should be convicted based only on an informant without some other piece of evidence that can you know, back up what someone's saying, we would need to have better resources in a public defender system. So right now there's a big disparity in financial resources when you compare what resources the district attorney's office has as opposed to a public defender's office. Uh, so there's a big edge in terms of manpower and uh, access to uh, experts and investigators. So there would need to be parity there. There would need to be a limitation on caseloads. So it's not unusual for one public defender to represent 100 people at the same time. We would need equal pay for both sides so that, you know, the best talent doesn't go to one side or into, into private practice. And we would have we would have to do away with, with uh, tunnel vision. What that means is when 
somebody forms a conclusion than just paying attention only to evidence that confirms that idea and ignoring that which doesn't. So as an example, in my case, when the DNA did not match me, instead of just conceding that and then refocusing investigation, it came up with this bizarre theory to try to take into account uh, evidence. So we would need to do do away with that uh, also. So is there any other types of technology? You know, you talked about DNA testing, right? That's been around for, for a while that that's come into play. Is there anything, you know, that should be thought of that they're not using that we currently have, or you see in the future being, you know, being able to help people that are innocent be freed? Well, I would say the, the fingerprint, uh, the, the, the fingerprint database, I mean, that that's worked in, in some, in some cases, but it's not, it's not as widespread uh, as, as we need. Uh, but technology-wise, that that would be it. I think maybe e- expanding, maybe expanding on DNA and continued improvement of of DNA technology. So, so hair hair evidence, for example, can be subjected to a DNA testing technique called mitochondrial DNA. Right now, that that is not compatible with the DNA database. So that would be one possible area of uh, of, of of expansion. So I would say those those things would be, would uh, would 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 improve uh, would improve a lot, and I think also if there was so when it comes to interrogations, um, coerced false confessions have caused wrongful convictions in twenty five percent of the DNA proven wrongful convictions. So before uh, before statements can be used as evidence, there's a pretrial hearing held where the judge determines if someone was given their Miranda warnings and if the statements were voluntary, but. That hearing, although important, I mean, that really has largely failed in order to keep coerced false confessions out of evidence and therefore preventing wrongful convictions caused by them. So if we were to have a different, an additional pretrial hearing where, say, the accuracy or truthfulness of a confession was considered by the court prior to it being admissible, that could be that could be an additional um, technique or hearing that's built into the system. So let me ask you, I'd I'd love to, for you, I mean, aside from your story, I'd love for Mm -hmm. you to leave us on a positive uh, note where there is, you know, there is hope. So, I mean, I want that to be very clear because I know some, I'm sure it felt very hopeless uh, a lot of times, um, but there is hope. So what are some of the um, most inspiring stories you've gotten to work on uh, over the course of your career at the foundation? I mean, just the—I mean, the re- reading reading case summaries of the other exonerations. I mean, you know, the DNA data, the National Registry of Exonerations has a lot of stories there. If I was to give uh, try to give some inspiration to somebody in the same position I was in, I would I would encourage them to go to the law library and learn the law. That gives a sense of empowerment. I used to co- I used to collect and read articles of other people who were exonerated, and that was inspirational to me. Or, or it, encouraged and it gave me hope to keep going and and uh you know there was really kind of a formula that i that i developed which can apply to wrongful conviction but really go beyond that as well uh so i would say set goals right the goal is to overcome wrongful conviction or some other form of adversity so set goals have a plan have a realistic plan uh remember be flexible so remember that the plan is not the goal the goal is the goal so if an unexpected way to move forward to the to, to the goal opens, be flexible enough to take it. Uh, there are no reasons why you can't accomplish something. There's only reasons why something might be harder. 
uh, don't be afraid of hard work and never give up. You know, and when you feel like you're about to give up, you can't go on anymore, then just say to yourself, you know, this might be the key moment right here where, you know, I'm on the verge of a breakthrough. And, you know, if I if I would have kept going, it would have happened for me. So, you know, even though I can't go on anymore, I'm going to do it anyway, just to see what happens on the other side. And once you make it to the other side, you reach back for other people in that same position you were in do some work on the preventative side. And I know that that message goes beyond wrongful imprisonment. I, I see that as applying to, mm-hmm. say, somebody who's homeless or a sexual assault survivor or somebody who survived domestic abuse or somebody that has suffered some kind of debilitating uh, illness or that's been discriminated against or has faced racism or anything else you want to name, you know, huge or uh, minor. And if you do that, then you can make your suffering count for something. It'll be healing. It'll be cathartic. It'll, uh, you know, help make the world just a little bit better. And yes, for all those reasons, you know, I would encourage people to think that way. And I live my life like that. And I would encourage other people to do the same. Thank you so much, Jeff. We really, really appreciate you sharing that. That was uh, very uplifting there to leave us with. We appreciate that. And thank you. Thank you for the work that you're doing. Um, can you let everybody know where they can learn more about you and the foundation? Sure. Uh, my website, www.deskovic.org. There's an email form there. People can email me through that. I'm on social media. I have a public figure page on Facebook. I'm on Instagram and and also LinkedIn, people can reach me that way. Uh, my ultimate goal is to have an office in each state and ultimately in each country because I see wrongful conviction as being a worldwide issue. But we'll be able to do that as as public support for us builds. So, you know, I we have a Patreon page. And imagine for a minute, dream with me for a second, if 25,000 people were willing to help free wrongfully convicted people by donating, say, $3 or $5 on a recurring monthly basis, I mean, that would give us a really good budget and we'd be able to hire, have additional attorneys and paralegals, investigators, other essential personnel, so that we could uh, increase the number of people that we could um, we could help and help it would help us to expand into other states and we could do policy work beyond just new york pennsylvania you know in california and i work 40 50 hours a week you know it's a labor of love i i I don't get paid for it but you know i'm i'm fine i i'm able to survive from the compensation i have i get a certain amount of money every month but so 100 percent of everything that's donated would go to the cause that that's the point i'm trying to make uh in saying that Awesome. Thank you so much, Jeffrey. Thank you again. Sure. Thank you for having me on.